What's up, everybody? This is Alex from Comic Book Historians with a heads up to check out our new graphic novel, Cult Girls, written by Natalie Grand with awesome art by Cassandra Boland. Cult Girls is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retail outlets. Cult Girls, based on a true story, tells the tale of Talia and her friends as they struggle with growing suspicions that their faith is a patriarchal religious cult. It's a story of tremendous courage and female empowerment as Talia and her friends successfully free themselves, told through a feminist lens with cautionary humor. All right, and let's get started. Welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Grant. Today, we have a very special guest who I'm happy to say I was in the same Stanley documentary as him, Larry Hama, creator of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, writer for Wolverine, Nth Man, Electra. Larry, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. You're born in 1949 in New York City. Interesting background. You studied uh, Japanese archery, Japanese swordsmanship. You have a really eclectic background, and I'd always love hearing and learning more about you. Tell us a little bit about that and some of the early comics you were reading when you were a kid in the 50s and 60s. I think the the most influential comic to me was uh, Uncle Scrooge, Carl Barks stuff. Even as a kid, I could tell the difference between the good art and the good story and the, the stuff that wasn't, it wasn't Carl Barks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've always sort of considered myself a duck man anyway. A duck man. Yeah. I, uh-huh. I wanted to get into comics because I wanted to do funny animals. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I, the closest I got to that was doing Bucky O'Hare. Yeah, that's right. Which uh-huh. I loved as a kid. I love Bucky O'Hare. Yeah. And you made that with Michael Golden, right? Michael Golden and Neil Adams. And Neil Adams, yeah. Did you read any Marvel, DC, or EC comics? I, I didn't find EC comics till I got into high school. You know, uh, I never. I don't think I ever saw an EC comic. You know, when I was a kid in, in the fifties, you know, I, uh, I had, like I said, Dells and Gold Keys. Um, you know, Uncle Scrooge's, uh, Walt Disney comics. Oh, okay. So not not really superhero stuff then. No, um, Daffy Duck, you know, Porky Pig, all that stuff. I wasn't all that interested in superheroes. I mean, I, yeah. I had like uh, Superman's and Batman's. And the earliest Marvel stuff that I can remember is, is like Journey into Mystery, specifically the stories that, that Steve Ditko did those horror and mystery books oh yeah for sure like the pre-superhero kind of stuff yeah, yeah. yeah so then now you also went to the manhattan's high school of art and design you you were there with frank bruner ralph reese were you kind of an artist as a kid and and tell us about how you got into that school i always liked drawing you know i was an only child uh drawing was a way to entertain myself and um i, I was fairly good at it you know um Junior high school had a teacher named Ann Leibowitz, who was uh, very encouraging. Uh, uh, I went to junior high school with Bobby London. Oh, yeah. He was one year younger than me. Uh, but we had the same art teacher, Ann Leibowitz. And um, she uh, encouraged me to take the test to apply for art. To the high school of art and design and take the test. 
New York City had at the time uh, a bunch of specialized high schools. Uh, there was art and design yeah. and music and art and uh, the School of Performing Arts. I think they, mer- they, they merged music and art and, and performing arts, and now it's LaGuardia. I think. And um, Neil Adams went to School of Industrial Art. School SIA became Art and Design. The list of alumni of, of that school is like, you know, two-thirds of the comic book industry in mm-hmm. the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s. I mean, Gil Kane went there. Alex Toth went there. Uh, you know, Neil, Joe Jesko. Uh, and also Frank Bruner, Ralph Reese, right? Right. They were, Frank Bruner and Ralph Reese were in my class. And then you had Bernie Krigstein was teaching yeah. there. And he was your teacher for a while? He was my illustration teacher for two years. For two years. Did you learn a lot from him? Oh, yeah. He was a great teacher. He was a person that taught not by saying, oh, this is how you do it. He taught by showing you how to open your eyes, the eyes of perception, you know, how to get over the procrastination thing. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. He uh, required every student to uh, hand in a sketchbook every Friday. One Friday, I handed in the sketchbook and uh, had one sketch in it. And he said, Hamad, there's only one sketch in the sketchbook. And I said, well, I spent all week on it. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, you spent all week on it. Well, it it still sucks. (laughs) And and then he said, you know, before you do your first really good drawing, you have to do about 100,000 really sucky ones. And if I were you, I'd get that first 100,000 out of the way as fast as I could. Oh, wow. And basically, he was telling me that at at that stage, your stuff isn't precious. I've seen this this syndrome that people, you know, they they noodle on on a drawing and try to fix it and something's going wrong and and they just can't. It it consumes them. Mm. You know, they'll spend two weeks on something like that. And then it's no better than when they started. But if they, you know, had pitched it out. Get the bad stuff out of your system first. Yeah. The other important thing that I learned was from Neil Adams. Actually. Yeah. I had the, the drawing table next to his at Continuity, which was not a place every, everybody wanted to sit at. Because of, <laughs> because of the constant. You know, you're under the glare. And he was uh, a very harsh critic, to, to put it mildly. One day I was working on a commercial job at the studio, and he was looking over my shoulder. He was, like, standing behind me, drinking a cup of coffee and eating a linser toy. And he says, um, I guess you're still settling. You should stop settling. I said, well, what do you mean, what's settling? He says, well, I could tell that you, you could tell the thing that you want to draw, you, you see in your head, is 10 times better than what you're drawing here. Mm. But what you've told yourself is, ah, that's a really hard thing to pull off. And here's what I already know how to draw. I've got these templates. You know, I, know, I know three eyes, maybe four noses, and one ear. You know? <laughs> and you, know, you just keep repeating these over and over again. And he said, you know, because it's, it's a lot easier to draw this than it is to draw. <laughs> uh-huh. But he said that, you know, if you, 
do the easy thing, you know, and use that template. You know, it's like going to the gym and doing one push up. Yeah. You know, but every time you push the envelope and try to do that really difficult gesture or that expression or, or, or whatever, or the lighting, you know, the first time it's going to suck. Maybe the, the next 50 times you do it, it's going to suck just as bad. Yeah. But, you know, but the magic happens on, on the day that it stops sucking. I see. You know, but you don't get to that magical day unless you cause yourself all that pain. There you go. Yeah. And so you're kind of adding Neil Adams instruction on top of Bernard Crickstein's instructions and kind of finding your path. I think those are the two most important things anybody ever told me. Now, when you were in high school, were you also like a fanzine collector? I know that you got your first work was Castle of Frankenstein, 1966. How did you get involved in submitting something there? My first day at at school, I didn't know anybody. I was sitting in the cafeteria and this... um, uh, a tall black kid comes up to my table. T- total stranger. I have no idea who this person is. And he, and he says, hey, do you like comic books? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just persistent. You know, and he was so positive and confident. You know, and he said, well, you know, I, I I know some real cartoonists and blah 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 blah, and you know, and I know this guy named Larry Ivy who puts out Castle of Frankenstein, and and he's friends with Wally Wood and and Al Williamson, Angelo Torres, and and all these guys, and I only knew half the names that he was saying, you know, but, <laughs> but on that very first day, he convinces me to go with him to Larry Ivy's house. So I meet Larry. So I meet Larry Ivy. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Larry Ivy exposes me to his collection, you know, of, of comics that he's got. Totally cataloged. He's got all the Reed Crandall Blackhawks. There you go. Yeah. All the Hal Foster Prince Valiants. Yeah. He's got a framed Frank Vizetta drawing on his wall. Huh. You know. I'm <laughs> So that was like an explosion of, of all this creative stuff. Yeah. And, and it was through him that I met Wally Wood and Angela Torres and Al Williamson and uh, Roy Crankle. Yeah. Who would drop by. And then one night, Calvin Beck comes up, doesn't come into the apartment, he keeps the door open. And he's standing on the landing talking to us, you know, and Larry Ivy was talking about leaving uh, Castle of Frankenstein and he wanted to set me up with Bob Stewart to take over. Bob Stewart was going to take over and I was going to be sort of like the gopher. Mm. I was in high school, you know? Yeah. So we're having this conversation with, with Calvin Beck and for about half an hour, you know, then there's his voice from downstairs in the lobby. Calvin, Calvin, it's getting late. And he's just ignoring it. <laughs> and so yeah, we're talking for another half an hour of this. And then finally he says, you know, he, he, he leans down over the banister and he says, uh, you know, I'm coming, Mom. Yeah. And it was his mother <laughs> who didn't like to go upstairs. So she would, like, stand in the lobby. I ended up working for, for Calvin Beck. 
uh, on the castle of Frankenstein. I mean, he, he lived in this uh, ramshackle house in Bergen County, New Jersey. I see. He had a basement full of old pulp magazines that the cats had peed all over. So you got some kind of assistant editorial experience this way. That's where I learned it all. You know, I, I'm a wonderful Bob. You know, Bob was, was really great. He was, a, he was a, one of my first mentors. He wrote that great book on, on Wally Wood. He did, yeah. Yeah, I've read that. Bob Stewart got me into Gothic Blimpworks. He introduced me to Ron Bodie, all these other people. Oh, Gothic Blimpworks, yeah. I first met Jeff Jones and, and Louise Jones at Larry Ivey's apartment. Yeah. And Jeff Jones had first come to New York. Louise was like seven months pregnant or something. <laughs> and it was a very heady time. And that's the next generation of comic creators all kind of hanging out there. Well, you know, and Gothic Blimpworks, you know, I, Bob took me over to the East Village and he, and he took me to the storefront where Trina Robbins, Kim Deitch, you know, had a, had a storefront living. They were putting out Gothic Blimpworks right after Vaughn started it. An amazing collection. Yeah, yeah, because I interviewed Trina. She told me about that environment. That's cool, yeah. Crom, Spiegelman. Underground. Spain Rodriguez. You know, everybody that started underground comics, you know, was, was in Gothic Limpworks. And Bob wrangled us a show at the Corcoran Gallery of Martin Art in Washington, D.C. It's a fairly prestigious gallery. It was, I think, called the Phonus Balonis. It was the first show of underground comic art in the United States, maybe even the world. You mentioned you met Wally Wood through the Larry Ivy connection, and you and Ralph Reese both worked with Wally Wood. Tell us a little bit about the studio. And you penciled uh, Sally Forth and Cannon, is that right? Well, not penciling as much as, you know, what, what... layouts. We called it swipographing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got you. <laughs> Actually, Ralph worked for him first. Uh-huh. Ralph worked for him at the studio in Manhattan. And I didn't really go to work uh, for Woody until after I came home from the Army. Mm, yeah, right. That was uh, like 71, right? 71. I needed a job. And uh, Ralph had said, you pencil faster than I can pencil and I ink faster. Let's team up. You pencil and I'll ink. And we did a bunch of stuff for black and white horror books. We did stuff for National Lampoon, mm. the Electric Company, Children's Selfish Workshop. A couple of illustrations for Esquire. Yeah, I heard about that. And Rolling Stone, too, right? And Rolling Stone. Wasn't making an awful lot of money. And, and, and Ralph said, you know, like, Woody still needs an assistant. And you go people work there a couple of days a week, you know, except a little bit more. And that's how he got in with Hollywood. When he was living in Brooklyn, and I was living in Brooklyn also, and I was only like, you know, one subway stop away from him. So that was really convenient. How was working with Wally? And what kind of guy was he at the time that you had contact with him? He was like my dad. <laughs> so there was a personal connection. He he had this relationship with you know, his younger assistants. Like, you know, uh, he was very paternalistic. Paternal, you know, yeah. It was great. You know, we'd, we'd sit and we'd draw, and then we had two guitars hanging on the wall. We'd take the guitars down and play, like, union songs, reunion made, or he was sort of folky. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Midwest folky guy, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he served, uh, I think, in the Merchant Marines. So did he, did you get, you probably had a, maybe a bond over 
similar military experience possibly? Yeah, he, he'd been in the Merchant Marine and he'd also, uh, he was he joined the army and was a, a paratrooper. Yeah. Right at the end of the war. He didn't, he didn't have to go overseas or anything. What we were working on was um, two strips for the military paper, uh, Overseas Weekly. Overseas Weekly. We never called it the, we always called it the Oversexed Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. My deal with him there was that we would alternate. I would write uh, an arc of Sally Forth and while he was writing an arc of Canon. Oh, so you wrote some of that stuff. That's great. Oh, yeah. I wrote it and lettered it. Yeah. Then we'd switch and he'd write Sally Forth and I'd write Canon. That's fun. I, I, I love those. I've read all those. Yeah. And I was also like looking up all the reference and the swipe and autographing, cutting zip, and doing all the other, you know, ruling panel borders, lettering. But I learned a huge amount. I mean, he taught me how to letter. He taught me the Gaspar Saladino alphabet. Yeah. He said, look, you know, if I, if I can't teach you the letter, I can't teach you to do anything else. Because uh, he said, the lettering, you know, if I, if I teach you the lettering, I teach you how to ink. It's all about uh, mastery of the tool. Yeah. You know, and lettering is very basic. You got boom, boom, you know, cross strokes. You got vertical yeah. strokes. You yeah. Got, the curved stroke. Those are all strokes that you could use as an inker too. Yeah. So it's all about you know, control of the tool. Because in the medical field, that's like stitching. After a procedure, the stitching is kind of like lettering, it seems. Drool number one, that and that was a humor underground humor magazine, right? I, I was a contributor. Yeah, me and Ralph, uh, I think we did a Clockwork Orange uh, parody. Let's talk a little bit about how you got hooked up to continuity and Neil Adams. Were you also working with Wood at the same time, or was there a tra- uh, like from one to the other one? Well, I was working with Woody, and then he he, he was going to move to Connecticut. So he, being a nice guy, and he said, "I'll I'll hook you up with uh, Neil." He really didn't have to because you know Ralph was already renting desk space there. I see. So I ended up you know renting desk space there as well. It was it was the best deal in town. It was like it was fifty bucks a month for a drawing table uh, plus all the coffee you can drink. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, since you were there, you got dibs on, you know, commercial work that came in the door. And you also were, were part of the Krusty Bunkers inkers. Is that right? Yep. So you talked about how Neil would kind of look over your shoulder and give you some advice. He was a big influence on you. He passed away today, which I think everyone's like just really shocked by. What do you feel is a legacy of Neil's. A lot of people don't realize that Neil paid for all the legal work for Siegel and Schuster. He hired Ed Price. He put his own money on the line for that. He campaigned tirelessly for creator rights and for you know creators to get royalties. And uh, nobody else was hoeing that row, you know. Yeah, no one cared and, as much about that. Yeah, and he tried to establish unions. You know, he created ACPA as the Academy of Comic Book Arts that might someday sort of morph into a union of some sort. That's an important part of his legacy. The work is amazing. The work just stands alone up there. But, and it was so revolutionary at the time he showed up. A lot of people couldn't comprehend it. And, and the other thing that he did is he you know, got his foot in the door at, at D.C. And he kept his foot in the door for 
everybody else to get in. Right. Each going in, Mike Kaluta, Bernie Wrightson, Jeff Jones, whose styles were like <laughs> nowhere near what DC expected as house styles. Yeah. It had actually, he kind of advanced illustration as a style right. at DC, right? Yeah. And you got Howard Chaikin in there and Al Weiss and, you know, and uh, he got me my first mainstream comic job. I think he told Murray Bolton off that if he, if he gave me an eight page horror story to, to pencil, that Neil would ink it. That's how I got in the door. I think that was a sinister house of secrets. So he got your foot in the door at DC, um, and this is in the early 70s, so 72, 73 now, right? Right, yeah. And um, how was the environment at DC? Because I think Infantino was still publisher at that point, right? Even though I did a story there, I couldn't get much traction there. I see. <laughs> I started to get more traction at Marvel. You know, I got yeah. a black and white hard job for, to do for them. There you go. I did a couple of jobs for Crazy, and then that led to... Am I getting my first monthly comic? Well, I think it was Marvel premiere with the actual. Right. Starring Iron Fist. Yeah. And that was following Gil Kane, basically. Yeah. I, Gil Kane did the first issue and then I picked it up from there. I love your pages. You can tell that you can write and draw. How was that line of work and, and how was Marvel at that time? I was making my first rate at Marvel on, on, on Iron Fist. I was making $23 a page for full pencils. So. If I really worked my butt off, you know, I could almost make as much in a week as as if I was like flipping burgers. At, at making- People forget about burgers. No one will forget about what you did. I was doing a, a Marvel monthly book. You know, boy, it was it was hard to make ends meet on that type of money. Mm-hmm. I still had to do you know commercial work. I see. So that's how you supplemented the income. I got gotcha. you. Right, right. But then one day, I think I was working on the maybe the third or fourth issue. of and I, I go to Marvel to, to bring in pages, and Howard Chaikin is standing in front in, on, on the sidewalk in front of the Marvel door, <laughs> and, and he says, uh, "Why don't you come with me across the street?" We're, you know, this is, they're starting up a, a company called Atlas Seaboard. Yeah. Okay. So Howard got you into that. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And I said, "Well, why would I want to jump ship from Marvel to go over there?" And Howard says. Well, because they'll double your rate. I didn't know that Atlas Seaboard was that close, that it was literally across the street. Yeah. Did you meet the Goodmans? Did you meet Chip and Martin? Not really. I met, met, um, what's his name? Jeff Rovin. That's who I dealt with. That first editor, yeah. And and Rick Myers. And you turned in Wolf the Barbarian. You wrote Planet of the Vampires, I think the first issue. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Wolf the Barbarian, that that is great. I love the work you did. It's two issues, but I love that. So was that a character you had brewing in the back of your mind before that point? No, it was just like, I'd like to do a barbarian, but I don't, I, I wanted him not to be just another Conan. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I went, you know, sort of more towards the Nordic roots. Yeah. And um, so somebody said uh, I was doing the Thinking Man's Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's true. Yeah. And then what, after a couple of those issues, what, the company kind of went out of business and that was that? Or, or how, what, why'd you stop? Yeah, what happened then was that I was in the elevator in the building that I was living in, West 55th Street. I had an illegal apartment in the Wyoming apartments. And so I was paying $50 a month for uh, what was supposed to be an artist space, but I was living in it. <laughs> okay. 
And the Wyoming apartments was, I think, they originally built as like a sister building to Dakota or something. Like yeah. Lots of actors and show business people lived in the building. Mary Travers from Peter, Paul, and Mary lived in the building. So I get in the elevator one day, and this, this is a woman in the elevator, and she turns to me, and she says, uh, are you an actor? Hmm. I said, no. And she said, well, do you want to be one? And I said, well, what does that entail? And she said, well, she was producing an off-Broadway production of Moby Dick at South Beach Seaport. And I got cast as one of the harpooners. Yeah. yeah so it was, I was Tashtego, the harpooner, and the guy who was playing Deku was Steve James. Okay. He later went on to be a, a black action star. And we got to be pretty good friends. He was a hell of a nice guy. Funny, funny as hell. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Yeah, you were also in MASH, I think, an episode or something, right? Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, I... Somebody saw me in Moby Dick, and I got some part in something else, and then somebody saw me in that. I think the third thing that I auditioned for was um, Pacific Overtures, which was a Broadway musical written by Stephen Sondheim. Uh, okay, yeah. And directed by Hal Prince. And I got cast in that. I was I had a principal's contract. So That's great. I did that on the road and on Broadway for about a year. And that got me into Actors' Equity. And when I was on the road, Doing the show in Los Angeles, I got the part on MASH, and that got me into the Screen Actors Guild. And, uh, and after, when I came back to the East Coast, I started doing some voiceover stuff, uh, dubbing uh, Kung Fu movies. Ah, that's I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, that got me into AFTRA. So I still belong to all three unions. Yeah, and that's the movies coming out of like Hong Kong, right? I did the bad guy voices on Sonny Chiba movies. Oh, okay. That's cool. <laughs> you have um, a real eclectic background. It's great. So now, as far as Big Apple Comics, um, Flo Steinberg, 1975, how'd you get involved in it? And what was Flo trying to do with that comic? Well, you know, we, we all knew Flo. Flo. I mean, you know, basically Flo just gathered together all the people she knew. Me and Ralph Reese and yeah. Herb Trimpey and... Uh, Al Weiss and Woody. Yeah, that's right. He did the cover, yeah. Yeah. She had this interest in, in the whole underground scene. Yeah. She wasn't just the Marvel secretary. She had a whole... Yeah, that's right. Because she's friends with Trina Robbins and all that, yeah. Right. Yeah, she was you know, really good buds with Trina and, uh, and Kim and a lot of the you know, movers and shakers in underground comics. And that should probably be more her legacy than being the secretary of Marvel. Toward the end of the acting career, you started getting work at DC again. You were there for about a year doing some editing. How, how did that come about? And now that's um, with Jeanette Kahn, I think, was there at that point. Yeah, well, Jeanette hired me as an editor along with Al Milgram, 
we were like the new blood. But, you know, a year later, they had what they call the DC implosion. Yes. So, you know, they, they pretty much jettisoned all the new hires. I see. So they got the axe first. I got you. Milgram and I got, got the boot, and Milgram went straight over to Marvel. And after a couple of months, he calls up and basically says, hey, the water's fine. You know, come on over here. <laughs> <laughs> I see. He was the test. Yeah. Yeah. So. So then when you were at uh, DC, though, right before Marvel, you're editing like Mr. Miracle, Wonder Woman. Were you kind of in the bullpen there? And how was the environment at that time? The, the fundamental difference between DC and Marvel was always that, you know, DC had a very tight sphincter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that makes biological sense. Yeah. I had my own office, you know, uh, and, and we're talking Rockefeller Center. You know? Yeah, that's right. I remember the, the first week I was there, I, I had some clippings or something, and I and I took a piece of tape and I hung it up on my wall. And some the office manager came by. And <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that, okay? You can't, you can't stick stuff on the wall. This is Rockefeller Center. What do you mean? I said, well, here, here this is a special envelope, inter-office memo envelope. If you want to put anything on your wall. You have to put it in this envelope, submit it to this oh, committee. Oh. oh, okay. That judges whether or not you can have it on your wall. Wow. Then they get two union guys to come over and frame it and hang it on your wall. I see. Right. And then that way they get their hourly wage also for doing that. And it was like, holy. Then I, you know, at Marvel, it was the complete opposite. You know, people, <laughs> you could. People have stuff hanging off their ceilings, you know. And it was, you know, it sounds like it was a lot more fun there. A lot more fun. I, I at Marvel, I couldn't wait to get there in the morning. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, it was great. It's like this, it was the most fun I ever had working in my life. You know? Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, because I interviewed Shooter, and although he had the structure about him, he had this these great stories about a lot of the comedy that was going on. That it seemed like he had a structure, but then otherwise people could be a little bit free in those kind of ways. It, would you say that's right? Yeah. It was an open office and people could walk in, wander around from office to office. You know, people, you know, I had a nice couch, you know, that we had bogarted from upstairs. <laughs> Jim Owsley, I later became Christopher Priest. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. Waited till the middle of the night. We went up to the, where the suits had their office. I think it was a, the next floor up or something. Mm-hmm. And we bogarted this nice leather couch out of the uh, CFO's office. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, six months later, I think they got the guy was came out to talk to me about vouchers or something. And he was sitting on the couch on his former couch. <laughs> <laughs> My office. And he's like, after like, sitting in it for half an hour he goes nice couch <laughs> he didn't recognize it but he admired it that's funny yeah, it, was a, it was a legendary couch i i, I think uh after, after i left marvel i think mark greenwald got a hold of it and after there you go mark yeah. mark uh, uh i think howard uh howard got it maybe howard mackie Oh, Howard Mackey. Yeah, that's right. In the 90s. I gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, um, that couch was there for a while then. 
yeah, the couch was different. It was a nice black leather couch with like brass studs all over. Oh it. yeah, it that thing's cool. built to last. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned creating uh, Bucky O'Hare with Michael Golden and Neil Adams. I remember I read like I think the first issue of that, and there was some mention of like Wally Wood as an inspiration, things like that. Uh, how did Bucky O'Hare come about? I started it at DC because DC asked all the you know all the people they're saying, "Oh look, we're going to create a creators contract." And, you know, if you, if you bring us a property, you know, you'll own a piece of it, you know, forever. And Milgram whipped together um, the nuclear man. He had flames coming out of the top of his head. Firestorm, I think. I, I came up with Bucky O'Hare. Yeah. But they never came up with a contract. So they told Milgram, uh, look, you know, like, uh, you know, trust us. Just hand, the, hand over the stuff and we'll get, we'll get you the contract, you know, when legal finishes it, you know. My lawyer at the time was Ed Price, who was also Siegel and Schuster's lawyer. Yeah, the same guy that Neil hired. Yeah. Yeah, same guy. Uh, he was Byron Price's dad. Oh, that's crazy. I did yeah. not know this. Yeah, and that know. totally explains Byron's involvement now. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and, and Ed was a sweet, sweetheart, one of the nicest guys ever. And he, he says, uh, you know, an oral contract is worth the papers written on. Don't hand them anything. So on his advice, I held on to it. And then I got laid off. Yeah. I got laid off. I still owned it. So I took it to Neil. And originally, I was going to write it and, and pencil it. And Neil was going to ink it. And Corey, his uh, first wife, was going to color it. And then... Michael Goldson showed up, you know, and both Neil and I looked at his stuff and Neil turned to me and he said, listen, this kid could do it better than either of us. Yeah, that's cool. That's what he said about Golden. That's cool. Yeah. So let's let him fly with it. So that's how that came about. That's great. Yeah. I love Bucky O'Hare. I was into that uh, as a kid. I watched the cartoon and stuff. Yeah editing crazy magazine did your involvement in any of the underground comics and contributing to drool did that inform some of your editing on crazy when you started that in 1980 yeah i, I started hiring all these underground guys <laughs> makes sense i had ralph doing stuff for it i had uh, joey hackman yeah peter bramley mimi pond trina robbins yeah. Oh, Ned Sontag was another guy. Wow. Yeah. And, and Mary Wilshire, eclectic assortment. Yeah. That's really great. That's interesting. So like when Dennis Kitchen did comics book in like 74, kind of the next time something like that happened where underground people came in was when you were editing Crazy in 1980. Yeah. I think uh, your underground stuff is really informing a lot more stuff than probably a lot of people even realize. G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, was one of, I think, one of my first introductions to anything Marvel related. First, there was a license from Hasbro for a G.I. Joe because they had G.I. Joe before. And then uh, they were talking to Jim Shooter about licensing it, making a new storyline. They were looking to, to have a comic book done. They needed a writer. Yeah, for the comic. Yeah, licensed comic. Yeah. They asked all the, the, the contract writers and they all turned it down. Every, every writer in Marvel turned it down. Nobody wanted a, a military book. Yes. As, as, it was a, a, as a toy license. Paid the lowest rates in town because the licensing rate fee came off the top of the page rate. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So that's why people were turning it down too. Okay. It was cheap money. Uh, there was no prestige. And it was also Pariahville. People told me, if you ever work on a toy comic, a toy license comic, you'll never be given an A-list book ever again. Because Woody did Captain Action and he was fine after that, you know? Well, he was Wally Wood. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying that up and comers could get pigeonholed, basically. Or older guys. It's the first way station on the road down to hell. Oh, okay. I got you. On the way out. I got you. <laughs> um, but I had been trying to get writing work for, for years. Nobody, no, no, nobody would give me writing work. So, well, you're, you know, you're, you're an artist. And uh, so I, I took it. And if, if it had been, you know, Millie the model, I would have taken, taken that. <laughs> A military book wasn't, wasn't the thing that I'd been dying to do. You know? <laughs> so G.I. Joe versus Cobra, although I know that from what I understand from the story is that then you asked, well, who are they going to be fighting? Goodwin came up with the name Cobra. But was this kind of formulated from like S.H.I.E.L.D. versus HYDRA? Did that turn into G.I. Joe versus Cobra? Pretty much. I mean, but basically, you know, at, at the meeting, I, I asked the, the, the question. I said, well, well who, who do they fight? Yeah. Hasbro said, oh, we don't have anybody they fight. You know, I, I said, well, what, what, what are the stories going to be about? It's, it's just stories about them marching, you know? <laughs> And I said, we need to have like, you know, some, some bad guys. And it, you know, it went around. I think Shooter was there and Mel Yantov was there. How about some sort of paramilitary? You know, Terrorist. Neo fascist, uh, paranoid paramilitary group. <laughs> Somebody said, yeah, like, uh, like, like S.H.I.E.L.D. It's like S.H.I.E.L.D. has a um, Hydra. Yeah. Uh, Hydra and Archie Goodwin said, yeah, so like, let's have them, you know, be a group like that. Instead of we'll just call it something like Cobra. Yeah, perfect. He just exactly. said that on top of his head, and everybody just went, "Okay." They're like, "Perfect, that's great. We got it." Yeah. It was just there was no bantering about. It was just okay. That's it. It's Cobra. <laughs> Very practical, but it worked. Yeah, because you know, GI Joe, real American hero, better than anyone, is. Is there a Cobra analog to Baron Von Strucker? Is that Cobra Commander? Could we equate them? Not really. I mean, because mm. Cobra Commander is basically um, an Amway salesman <laughs> or a used car salesman. And his chief henchman, you know, Dr. Mindbender, is a, is a failed orthodontist. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. This sounds like a very New York perspective, too. The thing about Cobra is that, like, they're not out for something totally abstract. They're promising, you know, prosperity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know, join with us and you know, your life will be better. Yeah. We'll make lots of money, you know. <laughs> the promise of taking over the Sudetenland, you know. Or... Yeah. <laughs> Land and money. I got you. Right, right. That was the motivation. So then now that comic ran from 1982 to 1994. You also created some of the female characters, CoverGirl, Scarlet, Lady J, right? And Baroness. And the Baroness, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I created the Baroness from the ground up because uh -huh. uh, when, I, when I sat down to do the first issue, 
I realized that there wasn't a single cobra that had a face. They were all completely covered with masks. In order to have dramaturgy, you need some agents of expression. Yeah, right. I wanted to have a character that could react to things that Cobra Commander said. You know, I go, oh, or yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it adds something to the visual. You're right. So I, I met with Herb Trimpey and I said, well, if we're going to have a character that has a face, let's make it a hot babe in black leather outfit. We'll call her the Baroness. Be a little bit of S&M in there. <laughs> I like it. And it works. Yeah. It works. Yeah. She's, I think, the most popular cosplay character and a very successful cosplay anytime someone does it like all eyes are on the baroness that's true <laughs> that's very true i've, I've experienced that um now ar- around this time then the the cartoon came out i think it was marvel productions made the cartoon stan lee was at marvel productions did you have any meetings with stan lee during this time or other times at marvel i've known stan lee since the early 70s mm-hmm. and it's flo steinberg you know flo steinberg was constantly saying you know, Stan is really is a gentleman. <laughs> um, you know, people badmouth him all the time. And he never badmouthed them back. That's true. You're right. Um, for all the, the horrible things that Jack Kirby said about Stan, you know, Stan never said, oh, you know, Jack's lying or Jack's blah, blah, blah. Right. And, uh, what's an in him to do that? That's a good point. And uh, actually, all these interviews, he never gets to that point. That's very true. And and he is honestly the guy that did make anxiety and superheroes a mainstream thing. And that was more his direction, I think. And I think that deserves a, a lot of praise. He brought a real sort of humanism to it and, and you know, basing the stuff. I mean, to have spider Spider-Man, you know, Go up in Forest Hills and yeah. you know, be part of a real neighborhood. Yeah, you know uh, that was amazing. You know because yeah. you know, prior to that, you know, Metropolis. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where that is. Yeah, <laughs> Gotham City. You know, or, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were all posing as New York. You know, but. You know, Stan was the first guy to say, well, it's actually New York. Yeah, let's keep it real, yeah. Yeah, let's keep it real. Yeah, there's a character, Tunnel Rat, 1987, that they say is an explosive ordnance disposal specialist. The character was born in New York. Although he's different ethnicities, Chinese, they say that he's modeled after you. Well, I wrote the bio, and, and nothing, not, nothing in the bio was made at all. What's true is that the sculptor modeled the head. After you. My head. So it is me in that aspect. That, that is your face. I see my you. face on the figure. Yeah. There you go. Um, now, part of your, you know, reading the Duck comics, creating Bucky O'Hare, it sounds like probably some of that informed your co-creating Peter Porker, right? Mm-hmm. Spider Ham. I think you you created that with Tom DeFalco. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? I, I forget really how that happened, but I think a year before that or two years before that, I had submitted a proposal to do. Uh, Marvel superheroes as funny animals. Yeah, yeah. which is great. And I read that, that as a kid too. Yeah, that, that didn't fly, <laughs> but somehow that all came to fruition within Peter Porker. And you know, Peter Porker sort of lay dormant for for ages. You know, um, as sort of a side note, and then 
boom, he appears in the movie. <laughs> All of a sudden, people are interested. You know, how did you feel like they got the voice right? Oh yeah, I you know that it, you know a couple of years ago, three years ago at New York at New York Con, I I, I actually saw a, a Peter Porker cosplay. Yeah, <laughs> a Spider Ham cosplay. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I loved Spider Ham and Marvel Tales. I think um, is uh, now uh, what I had read was you also were editing Savage Tales magazines, mm-hmm. but uh, Savage Tales magazine. But there was some shift genre wise. Uh, is that right? That it went from sword and sorcery to more to other flavors of comics as you edited it? Well, you know, Savage Tales. I don't think was ever really initially thought of as being just more barbarians mm-hmm. it was going to be sort of like men's true sweat <laughs> yeah military stories uh, westerns uh, you know some barbarians uh action science fiction mm-hmm. i got some pretty interesting guys to work on that book yeah including john sever yeah that's right yeah yeah and for meds adventure you know he could be considered the best artist for that yeah yeah so you edited the Nam comic. So in overseeing the Nam and also um, writing GI Joe, Real American Hero, you know how much is that in, in, informed by your own personal uh, military experience into those comics, or was there more of a, a separation, a professional separation? First, first of all, with the, as far as GI Joe was was going, I mean that was like my military knowledge at that point was twenty years out of date. <laughs> so. I mean, everything had changed, you know. So I, I had to do just as much research as anybody else. You know, with, with the NAM stuff, I set up the, the setup for the book. You know, I got the writer and I told him, the, the only structure that I'm giving you is, is that it, this is real time. And every month that goes by, in the comic, a month goes by in the, the actual year to year comic. Uh, and we're going to make, Actually, events sync up. Wow, that's great. Doug, I think Doug had done two tours in Vietnam, so he he was he was fine with that. I just gave him free reign. I see. You know, this is this is a setup. Just do it. And and you created the initial plot to the Nam. Then it wasn't really initial plot. I just just created the setup. I see. Okay. The the time frame thing. I see. Just more of the concept overall. Yeah, and and you know, I said, look, this this has to be stories about people, and it, and it's personal, you know, and we're, we're following real people, mm-hmm. you know, and it has to be from the EM uh, the enlisted man's point of view. Yeah. we're not telling it from the point of view of some general. You know, we're telling it from the point of view of you know a speedy four. You know, yes. A spec four, uh, a PFC, or an E five sergeant. You know, it's their point of view on the ground. Had you read any of the Harvey Kurtzman war comics before this point? Oh yeah, sure. And, and I read every issue of Blazing Combat. From <laughs> I wanted it to be different. Most war comics were just non-episodic. They were, you know, just you know, a self-contained story. But I said, look, these these are characters. And these characters got to evolve. You know, characters mm-hmm. has, to, has to come to, to Vietnam, go through the Rappel Depot, and evolve. You know, 
by the natural course of events, by what by what he sees, what happens, what he has to do. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that that's you know much more interesting, from my point of view, than just to have you know fights. Oh yeah, for sure it is. Mm-hmm. Aging in real time versus the illusion right. of change—that's rarely done. It's brave, actually, to do that. Ed Marks, the first character, he comes in, spends a year in country, and goes home. And other people are filtering in and leaving, you know, overlapping things. He really get across what you know, the, the feeling was at the, at the time. You know, when you see like World War II movies or World War II TV shows, you know, everything just goes on forever. You know, nothing changes. Yeah, it's way more interesting the way you did it. A couple, a couple characters that you've written. Nth Man, the Ultimate Ninja, Wolverine, Punisher, Batman. You know, these characters that you've written, there's almost an overall theme. And correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a little bit of dark hero, anti-hero kind of flavor to these characters. Is that something that resonates with you more than, let's say, something like Superman or or something or like Captain America? Probably. I don't think I could, I could write uh, Superman very well. I think I understand where Captain America is coming from bit more. Mm. I did write the novelization of the death of Captain America for Marvel. The reason, the only reason I got the job was everybody else turned it down because it was a, a three-month deadline on a, on a full novel. Oh, I see. Wow, that's putting the pedal to the metal, three months. And I had not read Captain America since Jack Kirby had done it. So <laughs> I was totally out of the loop as to what the, the current storyline was. And, uh, so I had to re- read like four or five years worth of the book before I can even start writing. Yeah, so no Baytrock in that one, it sounds like. (laughs) Just one quick question about Wolverine. When you were writing Wolverine, were there any limits about how you could develop his backstory? Were there any parameters that you had to work in as far as backstory? No, because I think it was doing so badly. I mean, the only reason they gave it to me was I think it was was on the verge of being canceled or something. I see. So, you know, for the first year or so, they, they just let me do whatever I wanted to do. Oh, that's cool. You could have made Sabretooth his dad or his brother, I guess, or whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the thing that happened was that then it became really popular. You know, it, it, was, it was like the number two and number three selling book. There you go. That there was more scrutiny. Yeah. So that's when they started making me come to the meetings and make me go on the retreats. Uh, every year there was an X-Men retreat where we had to go to some hotel in the boondocks and, you know, scream and yell and pound on the table and work out, you know, what was happening in the X-Universe for the next year. You know, there were so many writers and editors you know, doing X-Material. It was like, like hurting cats. You couldn't get anybody to agree on anything. Did you like those retreats or it sounds like you didn't really like them that much? Nobody liked those retreats. <laughs> it's forced. I see what you're saying. Did, did you watch his, uh, his origins? Did you like the movies with Hugh Jackman and all that? Did you feel like Hugh Jackman did a good job? Did you like the way those movies panned out? Yeah. I, the, the, uh, the old man Logan, one I thought was the best. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. yeah. That was like a Western as a mutant story as a Western or something. It's what it seemed like to me. It sort of seemed like a retelling of the wild bunch. In a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah something, something like that. That's true. Yeah, The washed up outlaws uh, trying to, you know, one last stab at glory. Yeah. 
Now entering the, the 21st century, you're busy with toys, cartoons, comics, TV, film, entertainment, you know, the entertainment industry. Would you have done anything different leading up to where you're at now with your work, your creative work and all those things? I don't know. I've never had a, a plan for anything. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just play I just play the ball where it lands. You know? And then what advice would you give to new people entering the entertainment industry in all those fields, media, they're full of new ideas other than partnering with Larry Hama. What other advice would you give to people trying to kind of recreate um, some of that same pioneering that you did? Well, you know, I'd say, you know, even if you have to make a living, you know, doing something else, uh, allocate 50% of your time to doing blue sky, you know, to doing stuff that you own completely. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're just, you know, uh, the salary man mm -hmm. uh, with no piece of the action. A decent piece of the action or even a, a small success is, is, can be quite sizable. Yeah, even a small of your own thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's great advice, that 50% rule. No one's ever phrased it like that to me before, but it makes sense because otherwise, like you said, the salary guy, but then you might almost be used by the industry in a way and discarded later, and that's no good. Comics were paying immense royalties. We're talking in, 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 in mid eighties. Yeah, the eighties, kind of the Jim Shooter, Paul Levitz era. Right, yeah, right. You know, people were making tons of royalties. Well, the books were selling a mil, a mil plus. Yeah, you know? it was that. That's when and I was then, buying comics. Yeah, yeah. So that's like crack. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. You know, you could, it's easy to get addicted to that. You know, and think, well, you know, who cares if I don't own it? I'm making all this money. You know? But then one day, pipeline goes dry. And not only does a pipeline go dry, but your particular style or whatever you do is out of style. Yeah. And uh, the phone stops ringing. Uh, it's very hard. To avoid that, you have to really be spreading your your shots all around, <laughs> and, and you know, being able to to do any number of things. If you've only got one shtick, you know, you might as well get out of it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you kind of need your hands in a few different things. Yeah, you have to be adaptable. You, know, you have to like. Be aware of which way the wind is blowing. Mm -hmm. Not be afraid to take chances. Yeah. You know, it's like the analogy I used to tell people was look, you know, when a train comes into the station, you better get on it because that, that train may never stop at your station again. Mm -hmm. um, most people, oh, but you know, this, this, this gig pays lousy, but it's steady. <laughs> you have to keep asking yourself, well, well, how do I adjust those values within myself? You know? uh, and, you know, being safe is, some, is sometimes the most unsafe thing to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Too many eggs in that basket and you feel 
you're not taking the risk to kind of spread your wings a bit. Yeah. That's really great advice. And uh, I think a lot of people will take that to heart. Um, last question. Do you have any upcoming projects that your fans should be looking out for? Not that I can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine. And that's yeah. respectable. Larry, thanks so much for your time. This has been really illuminating and wonderful. I've always wanted to kind of sit down and do this with you. So thanks so much, um, especially during a day like this. And I know you got a lot of phone calls to make uh, following Neil's passing. But again, thanks so much for your time today. Okay, well, thank you. 